0: Thank you very much. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, good morning everybody. Uh my name's Brian. I pastor Mission Church, uh which got planted in about well, we moved here 5 years ago. We're coming up on our 5th wall anniversary. No laughs at all. I'm just saying the 9:30 group was pretty lively. 9 o'clock, 9 o'clock. Um, so we moved here in 2012 and uh, got the church rolling that, uh, that September. Moved into Sharpstein Elementary on Sunday mornings about four years ago. And we've, been, uh, we've been holding services there and ministering around, and doing our thing. And I just want you to know, um, the Trinity Baptist has been such a good friend. So thank you. Thank you for being a good friend. I've talked to a lot of... Um, Men younger and not so young who are venturing out to want to plant churches and they, they got starry-eyed and they're all crazy and think it's going to be this great fun adventure. And I tell them, this is the greatest lesson I learned in planting in Walla Walla. Who is your receiving church? Not, not who's sending you. That's important too. Like from, from where you leave, there should be a church going, hey, we support you. We're for you. We're praying for you. Here's some resource. We want to help you get going. And they're sending you, but who's on the other side waiting for you welcoming you saying we're so glad you're here come on join us you know kind of like draft in behind us uh and be known in the community and you were that for for me and my family personally and you've been that for mission church uh, we're getting we're kind of getting to the age of a church where it's kind of it's like i don't know if we can be called a church plant much longer because we're just gonna have to be a church sooner or later right you're not a church plant you were at some point in your history um but you have been a fantastic friend to us and and we really appreciate you so on behalf of mission church thank you we love you and we're glad to be in walla walla with you uh pastor brad is up at he's well he's probably he should be about done right now well who cares yeah (laughs) take as long as you want brad uh he's preaching for for my people up at mission church at Sharpstone elementary and and i'm here with you and that i just want you to also know that's not normal It's not normal for uh, pastors in a town to say, hey, what do you do? Let's swap. Let's just not even tell our people. Let's just do it. That'd be great. And and to have that kind of friendship with our churches and with us in leadership is not that common. And that's unfortunate. um, But because of our collective friendship, I'm very optimistic and hopeful that's not going to be the case in our city. That's just not how it's going to go. That's a dumb game that churches don't get along and pastors don't love each other and aren't friends and don't swap and share opportunities to minister. That's a, dumb, that's a dumb game. It doesn't work. Nobody wins. So we're not going to play by those rules. Is that okay with you? All right, we're going to do this again sometime. Very fun. So we are in the book of Luke this morning. we um, be talking through a parable of Jesus that is probably... The most well-known parable uh, teaching of the Bible that everybody knows—Christians, non-Christians, churchgoers, non-churchgoers—everybody in our culture, probably even outside of our culture, is familiar to some degree with this particular parable. Now, Jesus told a lot of parables, uh, and and it's an interesting it's an interesting thing if you if you explore like why did Jesus use parables, it wasn't to make things accessible to everybody. It was actually in some ways to sort of keep things hidden because he he used a phrase oftentimes in his parables and he'd end them and he'd say for those who have ears to hear let them hear. You know what that means? If you're listening you'll get it. That's what it means. So it was an attempt from someone I'm going to hide this a little bit because I want people to lean in and go wait what? 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 I want to catch this. He talks in parables for that reason. He also teaches in parables because in the parables it's a little bit easier for us to find ourselves in the story. That's what he's doing. So I'm going to read you this parable and we're going to talk through it. But I want you to know the heart of Jesus when he's telling this parable to the people he's telling it to in Luke chapter 10 and, and to you today is not that it stays distant And like, oh, that's a fun story. That's an interesting thing. I know some facts about that, and I can retell that. Um, But that you find yourself in it. And you say, oh, that's me. I'm, I'm right there. That changes the story, doesn't it? That changes the story entirely. You're implicated in it. For the purpose of something fantastic. For the purpose of God transforming you. From from being changed, transformed from glory to glory, as as we sang and as the scriptures proclaim. <clears throat> you see, in Luke chapter ten, Jesus is going to tell us a parable, and he's he's in the so the whole the whole scope the whole sweep of the 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 gospel of Luke the whole narrative. Jesus spends the first part of the gospel, or or Luke spends the first part of the gospels, narrating this, talking about how we how what it means to believe. And then the rest of the text, and and a lot of it, as we'll see, is like, now that you believe, here's what behavior comes from that. This is critical. Because if all we have is right doctrine and right beliefs that we can articulate and argue, but we don't have behavior and life changes that come from that, then we are a tree that's supposed to bear fruit with no fruit. You see, the apples on the apple tree don't make the tree an apple tree. You can't just superglue apples to a tree and say, ha-ha, apple tree. No, but an apple tree by its nature will, will produce. And so the fruit of the apple tree proves what kind of tree it is. Being always precedes doing. And so to just say, hey, here's what it means to believe in the gospel, will produce or is meant to produce, a certain kind of fruit. And this is what Jesus is helping us to see in this parable. That if you're going to follow Jesus, this is the kind of life that will be produced in you. The parable is often called, and probably is called in your Bible, the Good Samaritan. Here's a funny fact. Jesus never calls this guy good. We do. Because we look at the story and we're like, well, that was, that was a good thing to do. And I probably can just say good samaritan I bet I bet 90% of you are already familiar enough with the parable or at least know that an undesirable person offered another guy a lot of help when he didn't need to and so this is why we name ministries good samaritan ministries we call people like and then a good samaritan came by they say this on the news somebody helps somebody in need that's a good samaritan uh, how do you know his ethnicity how did you know he he's not a samaritan well, because it's, it's now couched. It's got this, all this connotation for us. that That's the Good Samaritan, right? But if all we take from this parable, and I'll read it so we, we get right in the text here in a second. If all we get from it is we should be nice to other people, like this individual, then we've missed the parable. We have not had ears to hear. We haven't found ourselves in the story. Most people know the Good Samaritan parable as Jesus tells it from like verse 30 to 37. But the parable only makes sense in the setting. So I want to take us back to the text. We're going to start in verse 25 in Luke chapter 10. And I'll read through verse 37. And let's just discover together what what God has for us. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Jesus. Put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, deciding, desiring to justify himself, this is the lawyer, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, next day he took out two denarii, which is like two full days' worth of wages, took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay When I come back, which of these three, Jesus turns and asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Ugh. Uh, The lawyer answers. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let me pray for us before we continue to jump in. Lord, we thank you for your word that you've given it to us in language we can understand. And yet so often we come to it and we really don't understand it. So we need more than just the ability to make sense out of the sentences. We need your spirit to help, to help us make sense of it in our hearts and in our souls. To see you and to see ourselves in the story. Oh Lord, would you please do that in us today? That we would be changed, that we would be transformed That we be made into your likeness. Give us a spiritual receptivity to you and your word. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So it's a funny setting, right? Jesus is doing his thing, and a lawyer stands up. Now, it's not a, a civil or criminal law lawyer, this is a religious law lawyer which in this culture was somebody who was an expert in religious law, meaning the Torah, the the first five books of the Bible especially, and all the laws that they then made out of that. So you take the books of Moses and the law, the Levitical law, and then they would extrapolate and say, well, what about and what about and what about? And then they would start writing laws, like, well, what about in this situation? What about in this situation? Well, then this, well, then this. And the lawyer was the expert in that kind of law. So he knew everything there was to know. He was an absolute Bible nerd. Nobody was going to out-drill him with Bible verses. Nobody was going to out-quote him. He knew everything. He's the lawyer. And as Jesus was teaching, he stands up, which is an appropriate mark of respect. If you're going to ask a question, he would stand up. But we know something about his motives, don't we? We know that this lawyer stood up as a lot of other religious professionals in Jesus' days stood up and approached him to ask him a question in order to trap him, to test him. Let's see if you really got what it takes. To corner him into revealing something about himself that he really doesn't believe the law of Moses, really doesn't uphold the Torah, really is anti-law or anti-Moses or something to prove that they wouldn't have to listen to him that he really wasn't the Messiah, really wasn't who he was claiming to be. So this is, this is his motivation. I'm going to trap Jesus with this question. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? In this setting, what we're going to see is when it comes to neighboring, there's a standard that's been set. There's a standard that, frankly, we're going to see is, is ridiculously high. So what's the standard for neighboring? Well, Jesus replies brilliantly by asking another question. Well, what's it say in the law? He knows who he's talking to. He knows this guy's got the answer. What's it say in the law? In other words, how do you read it? What's the summarization? Don't give me all 700 laws, because he could have, this guy. Uh, How do you read it? What's the summarization? Well, he knows the answer. I mean, and frankly, a lot of you probably do too. Because Jesus himself said all the law and the prophets can be summed up in this commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer, he nails it. Bullseye. Right on the money. Right? He's feeling pretty good. I know this answer. This is like Law 101. I learned this when I was five this is no problem. I got this. All right, Jesus. Nice, nice move. You're going down. I got this. Jesus asks him, well, how do you read it? And he gives him this perfect answer. But there's something in there that sets us a little a little bit at unease. See, there, there's a catechism, uh, the New City Catechism, which is, we're going to, Mission Church, we're going to start doing this in the fall. A catechism is basically a, a, a process by which you can learn the basic truths and doctrines of Christianity. So, they used to do this all the time way, way back, and the Reformers did some, did some more catechizing. Uh, so, if you wanted somebody to really learn Christianity, say, well, you go to catechism, and every week you'd, here's the question what's the chief end of man? Well, the chief end of man is to, Enjoy God and glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's a Westminster Shorter Catechism, and then there would be another question. Tim Keller and uh, the Gospel Coalition have put together the New City Catechism. There's an app on your phone; it's super cool. Uh, it's really, really helpful. One of the catechism questions is this: What does the law of God require? Isn't this exactly what the lawyer is asking? What does the what does what does God require in order for me to have an eternal life. And Jesus says, well, what's the law? How do you read it? What does the law require? And this guy's like, totally been catechized. I got this. Because the, the, the New City Catechism answers the question, here's what the law requires. Personal, perfect, perpetual obedience. That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done. And what God commands should always be done. That's what the law of God requires. See, this is this is big, this is heavy. This lawyer knows and and the law and, and the word of God testifies that what the law requires is personal, perfect, perpetual obedience. That you love the Lord your God with everything you've got all the time, no matter what. That's all. So, one of the tests of, of what we love the most is when you've got nothing else to do. When your phone doesn't work, you can't make calls, can't look anything up, can't, can't scroll through anything, you're not in front of a TV, uh, you've you got on a radio nearby, there's no, none of your friends nearby, you've got no one to talk to, you've got nothing to read, nothing to watch, nothing to look at. Where does your mind go? Where, where does your mind drift to when you've got nothing else taking vying for your attention? Well, the law requires that your mind immediately, immediately drifts to the glory of God. And you are caught up in wonder and, and adoration and worship because of His glory and His beauty and His love and His grace. You can't, you can't stop thinking about it when nothing else is competing for your attention. Boom! I'm there. For all the time. Without fault. And without exception. And you love your neighbor in the same way that you take care of yourself. In the same way that you, you feed yourself, you clothe yourself, you, you make sure your schedule is upright, you, you, you take care of yourself. You love your neighbor that way, with that kind of priority. That's all. So, is Jesus, is He validating a works based salvation because the guy asks what do i need to do to inherit eternal life and jesus says well what's it say in the law well how do you read it well i have to love the lord my god with all my heart soul mind and strength of my neighbor as myself knowing that that means everything all the time perfectly personally and perpetually and jesus says sounds good to me do that and see what happened the lawyer was seeking to trap jesus and in doing so painted himself into a bit of a corner Because the standard for neighboring is unreachable. It's unreachable. Just love God perfectly, personally, and perpetually all the time. And love your neighbor personally, perfectly, and perpetually all the time. If you do that, you'll be fine. Ah, hold on. Whoa, whoa. I'm a lawyer. I'm an expert in this. I'm here to tell you right now. Ain't nobody going to do that. None of y'all are going to do that. We all know in the industry of religious law that nobody's going to do that. And so here we go. Oh, Jesus is just baiting him. It's beautiful. Jesus replies to his trapping question with a question to, to, to show his hand. Because... Jesus is not interested in just saying, here's what you need to do to inherit an eternal life. Jesus wants to get deeper. And the only way to get deeper into this guy's heart and into your heart and into my heart is to reveal what it is we're actually trusting in that isn't Jesus. And that's exactly what he does. Well, you just gotta just got to do the law perfectly all the time. Just do that. He called his bluff. That's what he did. Oh yeah, just do that. Well... Yeah well hold on okay sure but here's my here's my caveat here's my condition here's my proviso like so who's my neighbor i got to make this manageable where are the limitations because you can't just say everybody that's no i mean this no so who's my neighbor the standard for neighboring is such that it makes us very uncomfortable Do the law. Just do that. Well, we can't. And so we immediately do exactly what this lawyer does, seeking to justify himself. He asks, well, what are the limitations on this law? Because every law has limitations. Every lawyer knows that. There's always an exception. That's why there are so many laws. Because there's always some weird anomaly that shows up in the situation says, okay, except in the case of... And then here's another law, and then it's just spiderwebs out from there. So this guy's like, all right, well, fine. Who's my neighbor? This is where Jesus begins to not just help us see the standard, but the scope. So who's, so who's my neighbor? And again, we see, we see ourselves in this lawyer, because it says right here in the text of Scripture, but the lawyer desiring to justify himself shoots back with what are the limitations. I need to be able to do this. And if I'm going to be able to do this to justify myself, I need you to tell me what the limitations are so that I don't, I don't show that I can't do this. This is our heart. <laughs> this is where I start seeing myself, frankly, always trying to justify myself. little side note. What what are we talking about when we say, okay, justifying oneself. This means proving ourselves as being worth having around. That's what it means to justify yourself. And we do this all the time in in large scale, small scale. So when you're telling stories, sometimes, some of us embellish a little bit, right? Paint ourselves a little bit more heroically than maybe we were. You know, I stepped in and really helped them and They were so thankful. It was amazing what I did. Right? They just needed help, and I was right there, and wow. There you go. That's that's my story. Fish stories, and the fish gets bigger and bigger, especially if you lost the fish, because if the fish was really big, there's no way anybody could have landed it. So I'm justifying myself. I'm working the story in such a way, finding the limitations, narrowing the scope so that I can be seen as oh You really are worth having around. You've justified yourself. You've proven yourself worthy. And this lawyer and and we do that. All right, what are the limitations on neighboring so that I can justify myself and do this in a way that I can actually fulfill this standard of neighboring? And this is when Jesus launches into his story, Once Upon a Time. There was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he got beat up and robbed and left for dead. Now this is a, a well-worn road. I mean, you, you could look this up online, not right now. but You can look it up and find the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's been there for thousands of years. And it goes. It, it's, it's an interesting road. It, it, it's about 14 miles long. It's in a straight shot, of course, it winds through the desert and the mountains and the canyons. It's an elevation change of about 3,000 feet. And there are spots along the road where you're out in the middle of nowhere, even today. There's nothing around. And there's great places for robbers and bandits and thieves to hide. And it happens so often that there was a spot on this road called the, the Way of Blood, or the Pass of Blood, or the Road of Blood, because so many people had been killed. And beat up and left for dead. Jesus is telling a very familiar story. Maybe somebody in the listening of that parable that day had somebody or themselves. Like, I know that road. That happened to my brother. Or that happened to me. Or maybe I've got a, a distant relative or somebody who's one of those robbers. I don't know. This is a well-worn path, this road of blood, that Jesus is talking about. And of all people, of all people to be the hero, the Samaritan, the Samaritan is sacrificial, the Samaritan is generous, compassionate, the Samaritan is determined in loving in a neighborly way. There's no point in this parable that makes anybody listening to it feel comfortable especially a lawyer seeking to justify himself by trying to figure out what are the limitations on who who is my neighbor? Which is really a way of saying, who isn't? Who are those I don't have to even bring into my my scope? Like, well, you're not my neighbor. I'm not obligated to, to love you as myself. You're not my neighbor. We do this. We do this. We look at the law, love the Lord your God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We figure out how to, you know, narrow that down. Because it's ridiculous to think all the time. I am, my thoughts and affections are drifting and worshiping the Lord. Uh, and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, well, maybe my church family is my neighbor. Or maybe my family is my neighbor. Or maybe my good friends are my neighbor. So here are some of the limitations that, that we set on this command. And we narrow the scope. We say, well, they're not like me. And the lawyer certainly thought this. Whoa, ew, Samaritans. How'd he get in the story? They're not like me at all. Samaritans and Jews were not good neighbors. They lived near each other, just north and south, but the Samaritans were considered half breeds, heretics. They had their own temple, which was a knockoff of the real temple in Jerusalem. They didn't worship correctly. They didn't believe the right books of the Bible. They only held to a few rather than all the Old Testament. They didn't do anything right. And their very presence was a snub to the Israelites. And therefore, in their mind, a snub to the one true God. So there was no love lost between these two groups of people. They hated each other. And a little bit for some legit reasons. The Samaritans had been had, were, were sort of these crossbreeds brought back from after ex, some exiles, and they were there, and they did everything wrong. I mean, they weren't following the Old Testament. That's true. And yet, the Jews, just to, to the south of them, were so arrogant. They were bullies. They would raid. They would, they would attack and, and basically bully the Samaritans. So here we've got two groups of people that hate each other, and honestly, for, for legitimate reasons— you both are real mean to each other. You're wrong and you're cruel. Uh, couple of, that's losers. That's two losers in, in the fight. You're wrong and you're cruel. And here we have the Samaritan in this heroic role. I almost entitled uh, this morning's sermon, Not the Good Samaritan, but the Good Progressive Liberal Gay Muslim. To capture the audacity. You can laugh at that. To capture the audacity of Jesus' story. You don't, you don't, you don't put that person in the hero's role. We don't, they're not like us. They're not like us. And we do this. We do this, friends. We, we find people who are like us and we, we build our lives in those small circles. And i got to say, as as Christians, we're, we do this more than anybody else. I mean, all the world does this. Communities are built on... You know, who lives that are like me, whether cultural or ethnic or language or stage of life, neighborhoods, and who can afford those houses and who can afford these houses. And we find our little homogenous groups and we plant there. And we say, here's my neighbors. They're like me. And Jesus is blowing that limitation away simply by putting a Samaritan in the story. Another limitation we put out there is well, these people misuse their resources. Uh, this, this person, they've been helped a number of times. I, I've helped them. The church has helped them. They've gotten help from the state or wherever, and they just misuse their resources. So I don't want to be an enabler. I don't want to, I don't want to give and, and help and, and insert myself in a situation where it's not going to be appreciated. It's not going to be reciprocated. Uh, it's a bad investment. It's bad stewardship. Huh. You see what I'm doing? Now I'm using the Bible to justify myself. I can't love that. That person's not my neighbor. They're not like me, and they don't manage their resources well. They got themselves into this. Why was that guy even walking alone on that road? What a fool. He should have never been there in the first place. It's sad. I feel bad for him. You hear what's coming? But he should have known better. He kind of asked for it. Really? Okay. Let's just take that for let's just let that sit right there. It's kind of smelly, but we're just going to leave it right there for a second and ask ourselves, how many predicaments have we found ourselves in where we where we needed a lot of help that we got ourselves into? That you just made a bad decision. You just did something foolish. You can look back and say, yeah, I shouldn't have done that, and I chose it and I did it. And if we limited <laughs> help to only those who never got themselves into trouble, none of us would be here. But we do this. We limit. Well, I, I, I can't justify helping because. It's just not a good investment. Aren't, aren't we thankful this is not the way we've been loved by God? Aren't we thankful that God in His sovereignty before the foundation of the world set this plan of redemption in place and said, all right, here's what's going to happen. Only for those who didn't get themselves in trouble, I'll send my son. But for everybody who got themselves deep up to their eyeballs in their own sin, you're on your own. You deserve to be there. I mean, you, you made the choice. You walked down that road. You knew it was dangerous. You knew it was wrong. On and on and on and on. You did it yourself. So, you are out and whoever just is somebody else's fault for your sin, I'll save you. He could have saved himself a trip. I mean, what a... Jesus, never mind. You're not going, apparently. There's nobody on the planet like that. How thankful are we that the love and the mercy and the grace that we've been shown is not given to us because, well, it's not my fault that I'm in this mess. But exactly the opposite. No, it is your fault you're in this mess. It it is your doing that you are in such desperate need. And yet he came and he gave himself. So the limit of, well, they misused their resources and got themselves into this, Jesus blows right out of the water. The other one we use is, I, I don't want to condone their lifestyle or beliefs. What if by entering into their world, what if by going to them, helping them, having compassion on them, using my resources to to, to be with them and to help them, what if other people think that therefore I, I agree with them? Or I condone their behavior because I don't. How many people would get helped? A very, very, very small number. And I fear that one of the things that has happened to us as the church in the last not very many years, but maybe 10, 15 years, is we have, we have adopted rules of engagement that are designed to make everybody lose. We have adopted and agreed to rules of interaction Rules of engagement with our culture, within our city, within our world. Though we've, we've adopted rules that are designed to make sure everybody loses. No, we don't want to help somebody because if I help them and they're not like me, you know, the, the progressive gay liberal Muslim, I don't want to help. What if I go up to that person and then people think, oh, oh. Oh, so that's you. You're one of them. You like them. You agree with them. You condone them. No, I, don't, I, I have to make a stand for the kingdom, for the glory of Jesus, for the truth of the gospel. And so I'm going to put limits, eh, 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 real narrow, eh, on who is my neighbor. And I just want you to know those aren't, those aren't the rules of the kingdom. Praise God. Praise God. Jesus Himself was accused of being just like you. Oh, you're going to hang out with those people. Well, you're just like him. He's like, I really don't even care if you think that. Because my kingdom is not of this world. And every, every little bit of your philosophy and thinking that is, that is creating these rules of engagement is from this world. Kingdom not from this world. Your, your sucky kingdom that makes people feel terrible and doesn't work is from this world. I would love for us to just abandon those rules. I'm not playing by those rules. We're not going to do that. We're going to be the church. We're going to be the people of God that says, I'm going to help when God calls me to help whoever it is. And whatever anybody thinks, I don't have to answer to them. I don't have to justify myself to you. You don't have to justify yourself to me. God justifies us to Him through Jesus. This is some good news. We've got, a good, we've got a good gig ahead of us. What does it mean to neighbor on the road of blood? So the standard has been set really high. And the scope has been widened really wide. And here's the question. <laughs> Who in the world could love like that? I mean, the ending of the parable, right? Go and do likewise. So there's no there's no mystery about what Jesus is wanting from us. He wants us to go and do like this Samaritan did. Okay, who can love like that? How is this possible? So we have to look beyond just wow, the standard is really high, the scope is really wide. But what's the source? What what do we need in us to actually motivate us to neighbor? In this, in this way. We don't have what it takes. It's been proven. And, and before I jump into that, let me put a couple of cautions out there. Beware of guilt. I would imagine some of you right now are going, oh, I'm the worst at this. i got to do better. Lord, I'm so sorry. i gotta, I, I got I to gotta fix this. This is terrible. I'm, I feel so guilty for how many people I've just walked, along, walked seen and walked the other way. And you're feeling guilt, and I want you to know some of that might be appropriate, but if you feed it and you let it become your motivation, it will fail you. Because it's not the first time you've felt guilty, is it? And yet, I mean, our problem isn't we don't know the parable. <laughs> we all know the parable. I just read it. So we all know it now. But even before that, it's like Good Samaritan. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. I really should do better. <laughs> I know that story. Guilt won't work, so be careful, be cautious. When you feel that guilt, like, I'm, I'm just not a very good Christian, I've got to do better, those are red flags of self-justification. I've got to prove to God that it, I'm worth having around. Don't let that happen. It won't work. It actually deteriorates the call of God on your life to, to be a neighbor on the road of blood. Caution number two, beware of being anxiously overwhelmed. Uh, we live, oh my goodness, we are bombarded, we are flooded over and over every day with how many things are going wrong in our world that we must do something about. We must. And we've been told that awareness, being aware of a problem, equals obligation to fix that problem. So if you're aware of it, the next question is, so what are you doing about it? Ah. Huh? I have to say nothing. I feel bad. Does that do anything? Not really. I'm sending good thoughts. That never, never does anything. I'm praying. All right, good. There's something. But are you praying for everything all the time? Personally, perfectly, perpetually? You see where we are again? Having this anxious sense of being overwhelmed and I don't know what to do. I can't do it all. Right. That is not motivation. How many people did this Samaritan help that day? Oh, he set up a foundation. He gathered a whole group and they started a ministry called Road of Blood. And they went and they had a whole army of people and they swept the whole canyons of all the... No, they didn't. Well, they set up a hospital right there and a clinic and they got volunteer nurses to show up and they all said... And this is what happened from then on. No, he didn't. He helped one guy. He just did what he could with who the Lord brought into his life right then. That's, that's a helpful strategy. We'll come back to that. Don't let uh, that anxious sense of being overwhelmed uh, be a source of, of motivation on of how you're going to get this done. Our source for neighboring in this way can't be, it can't be guilt, it can't be anxiety, and it can't be morality. And this is interesting because who, who fails in the story? The most moral people on scene. The priest and the Levite. These guys, they they nail it. They were very moral. Well, until that day. (laughs) So they were presented. Morality isn't enough, because morality puts it back on us. It says, oh, I have to be a good Christian, and this is what it means in order to gain God's favor. We're trying to source it in, in Christian duty and not in the grace and the love and the compassion. It would have been a very different parable had Jesus changed uh, the characters around a little bit. If the parable went like this, one day um, a Samaritan was journeying from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves and robbers, and they beat him and stripped him and took all his stuff, and they left him naked and bleeding in the street. Every, the, the, the lawyer's already thinking, God deserved it. He's a Samaritan. That's what they deserve. So he's already thinking kind of smug, arrogant thoughts. And a priest came by, and a priest saw them, was like, I don't, I'm not touching a Samaritan. Gross. Walked by on the other side. And then a Levite came by, same thing. And the, and the lawyer's going, well, I don't blame him. And then a lawyer came by, and the lawyer saw him, had pity on him, and helped him. And the lawyer probably thought one of two things. That's a bad lawyer. He shouldn't be doing that. Or, wow, if I did that, I would be the hero. See where we go with morality? We, we, it, never, it never works. It never works. We get spun around in this story. This is what makes the parable so brilliant. We get spun around because the lawyer is not the hero of the story. We are not the hero of the story. In, this, in the parable, who is Jesus wanting the lawyer to most identify with? The guy that's been beaten who's lying, bleeding out naked on a nasty, dirty, hot road just left to die. That's you, lawyer. And the question that Jesus turns on him in a sense is him saying, so would you receive such neighboring love from this kind of person? Not... not Who are you willing to love? Who are the limited people that you're willing to call neighbor? But who would you like somebody to call you their neighbor when you're in that situation? And Some of you have been there. Maybe you're there now. I'm I'm alone. I feel like I'm bleeding out emotionally. I'm I'm all by myself. No one is helping me. And I can't help. I, I don't know what to do. You would take help I would hope, from anybody, progressive, liberal, gay, Muslim, walked up and says, hey, I want to help you. Yes! Yes, please and thank you. Yes, I love you. Thank you. I'm, I'm, we're friends now. I can't believe you've done this for me because I am not supposed to be your neighbor. See, the Samaritan, according to every other Samaritan, was not a good Samaritan. A good Samaritan? Let that Jew die. In the street. They deserve it. How? How could, would you be willing to accept this kind of neighboring love from somebody? That's the source. Realizing that we must first be a recipient. We must first receive that kind of neighboring love. Be the one on the road of blood, lying, dying, helpless and hopeless, and rescued. By somebody that we look at and go, but we're enemies. I've got nothing to offer you to justify myself to you. I have nothing to give you to make your saving me worth your time. I can't pay you back. I can't give you a good reputation with your friends. I can't give you a good heroic story to tell to to your, your family. Everything you're doing to me right now is absolute unbelievable almost amazing grace i've done nothing to deserve it i've done everything to not deserve it and i've got nothing to give you to pay you back are you starting to see the story what jesus was uncovering look mr lawyer you don't have what it takes to justify yourself and until you see that you won't be able to receive what it does take to be justified by the love of God so that now you can be a neighbor on the road of blood. Now you've got what it takes. You were saved, but you've been found. Jesus Himself, at this point of the story, at this point of Luke's Gospel, has made this shift. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says that he, he turned and He set His face towards Jerusalem where He knew He was going to be crucified. Jesus Himself, right as He's telling this story, is on the road of blood to go and pay for every sin, for every human, for all time. And not just to balance out and zero out the slate, but pay enough so that you'll never owe again. He is going to the cross to justify you so that you can be before God Himself. Jesus didn't just happen upon us like we see the priest or the Levite or even the Samaritan. He didn't just happen upon you. He came for you. He came searching for you. You're on His list. I'm going after this person today. I'm after them. I am finding. I know they're on this road. He didn't just put Himself at risk to rescue us. He suffered death. It's been said that the reason the priest and the Levite passed on the other side and kept going is because they were smart. See, it's not a safe road to be on in the first place. Especially if somebody's lying on the ground. Are, are, are they hurt? Are they bait? Are they, are they part of the robbery crew? They're moaning and tempting me to come over there, and as soon as I stoop down to help them, my back is turned, and I don't see what's happening behind me. I could be the next victim. It's not smart. Jesus didn't come at just at risk of his life. He came and he suffered and he gave his life. He was robbed of His clothes. He was beaten. He was left for dead on a hill called the Skull. He didn't just take us to a better place for a little while. He took our place. He gives us His righteousness, His life, and He takes upon Himself our death. At some point, Jesus meets you on the road and He swaps places with you. Now you're the king with the horse and he's the suffering, sin offering. And he gives you his life. He didn't just pay for your immediate care for right now. He paid for your eternal redemption and a permanent, irreversible place of privilege in the family of God. What is the source of neighboring and loving people like this? Being loved like that. Being neighbored that way. And now, don't you find yourself like, Jesus didn't wait for me to deserve it. I couldn't. He didn't wait for me to ensure that I could pay Him back, because I can't. He didn't just pay a little bit. He did everything He could, which was all I needed. Um, I, who am I going to deny? Who is not my neighbor? How, how could I limit the scope of who my neighbor is when God Himself in His perfection and holiness looked at me and said, that's my neighbor, I'm going to neighbor Him. I'm going to come and pay for Him. I'm going to rescue and redeem Him and do everything that is necessary. And wow, that changes. I, I, my limitations have been blown up. I, mm, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you believe. I don't care who you worship. I don't care who you sleep with, who you love, who you call, what gender you call yourself. If you are in need, the fact that I have been helped by the Lord God says, I, I'm, I will neighbor you. I'm just going to neighbor you. I don't know where it leads. I, don't, I, I'm not, I can't justify myself by doing it or not doing it. I've been justified by Jesus doing it for me. That's the source. So what are some strategies? Because I think you know, we don't want to miss the fact that Jesus says, look, I want you to go and do this. So what are some things, that, some handles that we can take away this morning? But now that we've been neighbored by God through Jesus dying for you, what can I do? How, how do I neighbor on the road of blood? First thing I would say is put yourself on the road of blood. Don't look for the most convenient path. Don't look for the way of least resistance. Don't look for people that are just like you. Put yourself out there in the world where it's dangerous and risky. Where people might think ill of you. But you're, but you're surrounded by believers and people who are with you on the road of blood. Following Jesus. That's where He came. That's where He found you. With somebody else. So be there. Set yourself following Jesus on that road. Let Him know today, Lord, wherever you want to send me, I'll go there. I'm not my own. I've been bought with the price. It says that Samaritan saw the man. And sometimes I think our eyes are closed to the things going on around us and the people that are around us. We don't see them. He had compassion on him. And this is huge. This is what changes it from Christian duty to Christian grace Gospel behavior, it says it, the word means he felt it deep in his guts, this close identification with him. I've been where you are. I know that feeling. I know that feeling. And I want to help because that's a terrible feeling. God came to you on your road of blood. On your road that you got yourself into. But he didn't let that stop him. It, it, it accelerated his search because he knew you couldn't get yourself out of it. We bring a love to our neighbors that is rooted in the reality of Jesus Christ and his love for me and his love for others. We've been neighbored. Go and do likewise. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you so much. We thank you. I wish there were bigger words to use. We thank you for loving us the way you have, for searching us out, for coming to us where we were alone, wallowing, helpless, and dying in our sin, and taking our sin upon you and going to the cross, walking our road of blood on our behalf. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us to receive and to know that we are that loved, and and to have our eyes up and to see those in our path who are in need of that kind of neighboring. Lord, it's going to require wisdom and help and sacrifice and and cost and risk and, and all those things, but we do it and we want to do it because our city needs it and the lost need it. As we were lost, you found us and we pray that, God, that you would use us to seek and find more. For your name and for your great glory, God, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.